Good evening, everyone. It is a joy to be with you. If we haven't met, my name is Connor Coskery. I have the joy and privilege of serving our students here at Redeemer. And tonight, we're going to continue our study in Mark. So if you want to begin turning with me there, we're going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. Verses 21 through 43, Mark chapter 5. This Sunday, it uh, constitutes the third Sunday in Epiphany, which uh, we talked about a couple weeks ago. Epiphany is a time where we, uh, in the historic church calendar, where we take moments to reflect on who Jesus is and how he reveals himself to be God throughout the scriptures. And so uh, each week, as we're studying through Mark, Mark is inviting us to ask this question, who is this Jesus? And last week, we saw Jesus pursue and save a desperate man. And it was a yet another demonstration that Jesus is God and that Jesus can do what no other person can do. Our passage tonight is going to continue on that same theme. Who is this Jesus? What we're going to see is that Jesus is patient Jesus is compassionate, he is powerful, and he again demonstrates to us very clearly that he is God. So typically we would uh, would read the passage right now, but uh, tonight I'm going to change it up a little bit. And we're not going to read it uh, right off the bat, but we're actually going to read it together as it unfolds. And I'm going to comment along the way. This passage... As I've sat in it this week, there's, there's a real tension. There's an emotion throughout this passage that I really believe is best experienced opposed to just reading it. And so um, pray with me, and then we're going to jump right in. God, we thank you for gathering us tonight. There's a lot of things that we could be doing right now. But everyone sitting here has come because they want to pay attention to what you have said. So Lord, would you open our minds, open our hearts? Would you incline our hearts to your testimony and not to selfish again? Would you open our eyes to see the wondrous things from your law? Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? And would you satisfy us this evening with your steadfast love that we would be glad all of our days? And Lord, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. For you, Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to, uh, to go to Rome, Italy, and serve with college students doing college ministry. And what we would do is we would go out onto the college campuses And we would initiate relationships, establish friendships with college students um, with the hope of creating inroads to share the gospel. And ministry in Italy is really challenging. There's There's a particular hardness to the gospel. However, relationships come really easily. Uh, Italians love to make friends and their, their culture, it's very familial. And so early on, while our team was there, we uh, we established relationships, friendships with this one group of friends on the college campus, and we would meet regularly at the cafe for a coffee. And one day, we had set up a coffee meeting for 1.30 p.m. 
Mind you, I come from, uh, from the school of early is on time, on time is late, and late is unacceptable. Um, <laughs> thank you. So, naturally, I showed up at the cafe around 1.15, got a table. 1.30 came, and my Italian friends did not show up on time. Nothing surprising. 1.45, 2 o'clock, 2.30, 3 o'clock. Anyone who's traveled to a different country knows exactly where I'm going here, right? Finally, at around 3.10, this group of guys and gals, they showed up eager and excited to hang out with me. And at this point, I'm mystified, A, that I'm still sitting there, and B, they didn't even apologize. They didn't, they didn't even think it was wrong that they were an hour and a half late. And I asked them, did you forget about our meeting? Is, did, something, did some emergency come up? And they said, no, we just, we're meeting with some other friends and we lost track of time. Didn't compute in my brain. It was one of the first times where it really hit me, smack dab in the face, that, oh, my perception of time isn't like everyone else's. And we see this represented in cultures around the world. I mean, for example, countries uh, like US, the USA, Germany, Japan, they're fast-paced. Time is money, right? Um, but cultures in the Middle East, parts of Europe, they're a lot more relaxed, their culture's more familial. It's more socially oriented. For my Italian friends, the rude thing for them to do would have been to stand up from their previous meeting and to come and get coffee with me. How we think about time impacts how we experience the world. And the story that we're going to read tonight, Jesus challenges our idea of time Jesus is going to challenge our idea, our perception of pace. The story begins with a crisis and Jesus responds, but Jesus doesn't respond in the way that we expect. But Jesus is teaching us. He's teaching us something really important about who he is. Jesus shows us that his grace rarely operates on our schedule. He will not be hurried to, uh, to continue on his mission, to continue on his mission to seek and save his people. And as frustrating as this is for us and will be for us, this is good news for us. He wants to teach us. In these verses, Mark employs one of my, I'm going to go Bible nerd here for a moment, one of my favorite literary techniques. It's called the Markin Sandwich. Mark and sandwich. So what Mark does, he does this in a couple of different places in his gospel. But here in particular, what he does is he'll start with the story right here, and then he'll seemingly divert to a random story, and then he'll pick back up with uh, the story that he began with. And he does this intentionally. What he's doing is he's, the story that he begins with, if you think of it like the bun, it's meant, that, that, that story is meant to inform the inner story and the, the taste of the inner story is meant to permeate out to the outer story. In our passage tonight, the outer story is about Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter. And the inner story is about an unnamed woman who for the same 12 years 
has been suffering with a bleeding disorder. So let's dive into the text. And as we do so, I, I want to invite you to use your imagination. Who are these people? I want you to feel the tension, the desperation, the shock, and the unexpected joyous hope as it unfolds to us. So let's begin reading verses 21 through 24. And do listen carefully, for this is God's word. Verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was left beside the sea. And he was beside the sea. And then came out one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jesus returns from healing the demon-possessed man, and he's mobbed by crowds of people. The healer's back. But in the chaos, Mark singles out one particular man, Jairus. And Jairus, we read, is a ruler in the local synagogue. This means that he is likely powerful, wealthy. He's a respected man in the community. He held a position of honor and influence. This is the kind of guy that you wanted your kids to look up to. He's the kind of guy that could make calls and get things done. Yet here, we find him bowing at the feet of Jesus begging him to come to his home because his daughter is really sick. This is peculiar, isn't it? There's a lot of questions that are posed from this. Are there no other doctors in the land? As a rabbi, bowing at the feet of anyone, let alone someone as controversial as Jesus at this time would have been ludicrous. Not to mention Jesus's ministry was starting to create quite the stir. Jesus, wherever he went, was disruptive. And the Roman rulers who uh, kept charge of this part of the land, they had a lot of incentive to keep things calm. As a synagogue ruler, Jairus would have had every incentive not to draw attention to his little parish. This all shows us that Jairus is desperate. He's afraid. This is his last shot, so he shirks his pride and he crumbles before Jesus, believing that if Jesus, if you don't come to my home, my daughter is going to die. Jairus must have felt this strange mix of adrenaline and fear when he hears that Jesus is back on the other side. But seeing him, he goes from hopeless to hopeful. The question in the background lingers, will he make it in time? Will he make it home in time? When I was growing up, uh, my family was uh, big 24 fans. Any 24 fans in here? Uh, okay, yeah, we got a few here. Um, 24, so 24, each episode was about Jack Bauer who would um, have 24 hours to save the world. It was really great. Um, but in each episode, there's brilliance in it because before and after each commercial break, 
and this was network TV, so there was a lot of commercial breaks, um, it would show the clock going beep, 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 and it built this tension. You kept feeling like, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? He always did it, but is he going to do it? And this story feels like a race against the clock. It starts and it feels, is he going to make it? Jairus asks, Jesus agrees to come, but is he going to get there on time? So from here, they turn towards Jairus' house. And from there, the story diverts to a random, unnamed woman. So let's keep reading. So reading, starting in verse 25, we'll read through verse 34. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had, who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I, if I even touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Mark takes a turn from Jairus, whose daughter is really sick, and introduces us to a woman who's really sick. We don't know a lot about her, but what we do know is that she, sh she suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. Who is this woman? What's her story? Why now? Physically, we can infer that this woman is probably, she's probably really skinny. She's probably pale, weak. She probably suffers from near constant headaches. She probably sleeps for most of the day because simply moving about drains her energy. Her body is failing her. But her condition also had social consequences. Having a discharge of blood meant that she is ceremonially unclean all the time. The book of Leviticus, which was written to help God's people remain holy and set apart, had a law that describes that a woman with a discharge for many days is considered unclean. This uh, wasn't just for women. There were similar laws for men. But the implications of this for her meant that she was barred from the synagogue she had to be isolated from others. And everything she touched was considered unclean and would have to go through a, a washing ritual purity uh, to, to get clean. But then Mark tells us that there's more. This woman had spent all of her money trying to find a cure. She's visited all the physicians, all the healers. And instead of getting better, she's actually getting worse. She's now bankrupt. 
So this woman is desperate and in all likelihood lives her life under an incredible burden of shame. But then she hears that Jesus has come to town. And he has a track record of doing amazing things. So she devises a plan. I'll walk up behind him. I'll touch his robe. And then I'll leave the scene. And Mark doesn't give us many details beyond this rough sketch of her plan. And perhaps given her condition, she did. She, she lied on the ground where she did most of her days and she, uh, she noticed him in the distance and she mustered up all of her energy to, to, to crawl, to just touch and then go back into the shadows. Maybe that's how it went down. We don't know. But what we do know about the woman And again, the consequences, particularly socially for her condition, it at least opens up the possibility that this went down a a different way. Think of it like this. So follow with me. She was declared unclean, and this meant that people were literally taught to avoid her at all costs. Don't get near that woman, because if you you get near that woman and you accidentally touch her, well, we're going to have to go through this whole ritual cleaning process again. If that's the case, it's possible she contrived a more stealth way to get to Jesus. Instead of lying on the ground, maybe that day she woke up and she put on her finest dress. She cleaned her face up. She cleaned the dirt off of her body. She braided her hair. And then she goes to find Jesus. Instead of lurking in the shadows where people expected her, She uses all of her energy to blend into the crowd. Nobody has to know what's going on beneath the surface if she just looked like everyone else. Regardless of how she went about it, what we do know and what we can sense here is that she perceives that this is her last shot. This is her Hail Mary. So she sees Jesus and she reaches out, she touches his garment And immediately she's healed. And then Jesus does something surprising. Instead of just continuing on his mission to Jairus' house, what does he do? He stops. And he notices that something's happened, that his power has gone out from him. This is the first time that Mark uses the Greek word dunamis. And dunamis means power, strength, capability. It's the word that we uh, get our word dynamite from. Jesus experienced weakness. Something is, his power has drained out of him and someone else has gained healing. So Jesus stops the procession. He says, who's touched me? And you can imagine, you can see the, the, the confusion on the disciples' face. They're like, hey, Jesus, you do see all the people around you, right? Who touched you? Everyone's touching you. But he, he noticed something, something was different. Someone's been healed. And then Jesus saw her. And I imagine this moment like a scene in a movie where everything goes silent. And the crowd splits in two, and Jesus locks eyes with her. 
She's been found out. Everyone can see her. And this would have been incredibly threatening for a woman who is unclean in a society like this with a controversial rabbi standing there looking at her. But what does she do? She doesn't run. She doesn't deny it. Something unbelievable, something that she can't even believe has happened to her. So she walks to Jesus with fear and trembling. She falls at his feet and she tells him the whole truth, the whole story of what happened. And I like to think of this, this moment where she's sitting there and she is telling Jesus the whole truth, that this is the, the whole truth. She's telling Jesus about her plight for the last 12 years. She's telling him about everything she's experienced. And how does Jesus respond? He's not frustrated by her distractions. He's not frustrated by her clever deceit. He doesn't pull back from her uncleanliness. He sits and he listens to the woman like she's the most important person in the world. And then he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. In this simple phrase, Jesus is saying two incredible things. First, he calls the woman daughter, capital D, daughter, as if to say, my daughter. This is the only time in Mark where Jesus directly calls someone his daughter. And he does this in front of everyone because he wants, to, he wants everyone who's, who's there to know that this woman's identity is not the unnamed bleeding woman anymore. This woman is my daughter. She's a daughter of the king. And second, he says, your faith, your faith has made you well. Made well, this phrase. It's another word for saved. She believed in faith that Jesus could do what no one else could do. And so she went to him. And when she did, she was saved. I see this woman as a walking testimony of Psalm 40. Psalm 40 says, He heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. This woman was stuck in the miry bog. She was stuck in the pit of destruction, but the Lord listened to her cry and lifted her up. He saved her physically and spiritually. She's healed from her affliction. She's made clean, and she is welcome into life-transforming relationship with Jesus. Where are you in this story? Where are you in this story Keep in mind that this woman could have been blending in with the crowd, making sure that nobody knew what was going on beneath the surface. We might have a lot more in common with this woman than we think. Are you living a life in the shadows in what feels like shackles of shame? 
exhausted from covering it up. Hear Jesus' tender call to come out into the light. You were not created for darkness. You were created to live in the light. And he wants to hear your whole story. He won't turn his back on you. Jesus has come to set you free and to welcome you into his family. In the same way he did not stiff arm this woman, he will not stiff arm you. Or maybe you're simply desperate. Run to Jesus with courage, believing he can meet your every need. Even if your faith is but a spark. The author of Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And if we look at the things seen, they constantly suggest that God is not good, that God is not here, that God is not with you. That was certainly true in the woman's life. But we have God's word and the Holy Spirit and his people to remind us that that's not true. God doesn't ask you to climb out of the miry bog. He doesn't ask you to muster up your strength to do it. He calls you to cry out for mercy and to trust him to rescue you. The woman's testimony challenges and assures us that he can and he surely will. Where are you in this story? Jesus is sitting with the woman and then someone rushes up to Jairus and tells him that his daughter is dead. In back-to-back verses, we see the word daughter used and so the sandwich is starting to come together. The story begins with a request from Jairus, a plea, please come and save my daughter. And then in the middle, Jesus diverts his attention and says, hey, we need to pause for a moment. I need to heal. I need to save my daughter. When the messenger arrives, the attention shifts back to Jairus and his little girl, but the clocks run out. Let's read verses 35 through 43. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the father and the mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them and no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. How do you think Jairus felt as Jesus sat with this woman hearing the whole story? 
Aragyrus. I can imagine him just like very antsily pacing. Probably would have been angry, anxious, frustrated. Again, Jesus is not going to be hurried. Mark records that Jesus overheard the messenger and he calmly, the same word for overhearing could be uh, rendered ignoring, ignores them. And he looks at Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe. Moment of honesty. If I put myself in Jairus' shoes, Jesus' words sting. My daughter is dead. And in my mind, all of this could have been avoided if we would have just followed the plan, right? Hearing don't fear, only believe, at best feels confusing and at worst feels condescending and trite. But Jesus isn't being insensitive here. In fact, these five words, do not fear, only believe, are words coming from his deepest wells of compassion. He's looking at Jairus in the eyes and he's saying, trust me. He's saying, I know that you're afraid. I know that you think that my delay means the death of your daughter and now your desperate hope is gone, that nobody can do anything now. But faith knows that I can do what nobody else can do. I don't make mistakes. I'm in control. That's what he's telling him in those words. And we see the burning embers of Jairus' faith. What does he do next? The messenger comes and he doesn't, he doesn't tell Jesus to get lost. He doesn't say, we're done here. He takes a small step of faith and he walks to his house with Jesus. We could spend a lot of time there. Spend some time in your home groups this week talking on that. He takes a small step of faith and he walks to his house with Jesus. And when they arrived, the grieving process, it was in full swing. Mark records that there were numerous people there. They were weeping and wailing loudly. But Jesus is disinterested. He rebukes the crowd. He says, what are you guys doing? Why are you weeping and wailing loudly? The child is asleep. She's not dead. As you can expect, the crowd responds with derisive laughter. But Jesus isn't, isn't insulting their intelligence. He's not as if they don't know the difference between dead and asleep. Jesus says the little girl is asleep to prepare them for what he's about to do. He's about to show her parents and the disciples that he's not just a healer. He's not just a healer. He's God. And God's chief mission when he comes to this earth is to take dead things and make them alive. So he takes the little girl's parents and a couple of his closest disciples and they enter her room. And Jesus sits down next to her. And he takes her hand and he says two things. Talitha, which means little girl. It's an Aramaic term. It's, an, it's a term of endearment. It's a diminutive term that a parent would use with their child. It's a pet name, like honey, sweetie, love. 
And then Jesus says, come, which means arise. This isn't the word for resurrected, but get up. Remember when you were a child, maybe it was a weekend or maybe it was every day before school and your parents would open the door and they would say, honey, it's time to get up. Jesus in this moment is doing exactly what her parents had likely done with her every day. They'd open her door and they'd say, honey, it's time to get up. And she does. The little girl gets up. Jesus walks into the little girl's room and he is not confused. This isn't a ruse. The little girl isn't playing a trick. She's really dead. Jesus emphatically demonstrates that he is the Lord over death when he walks in that little girl's room. And he stares it down. He walks in and he looks into the eyes of the most horrible enemy of the human, human race. And he looks into the eyes and he grabs the little girl's hand and he reaches into death and he pulls her back up. Friends, when you trust in Christ, this little girl's story becomes yours. You go from death to life and have the power to live your life knowing that even if the worst comes, Jesus promises, I have you by the hand. Death is nothing but sleep. And one day, I, you will hear my voice saying, honey, it's time to get up and you will get up. come to the end of the story when we begin reconstructing the Markin sandwich that we've just deconstructed, we see that the two stories actually have a lot more in common than we might have originally thought. They both show this progression of fear to faith. Both Jairus and the woman came to Jesus desperate and afraid, hoping that Jesus could do and would do what no one else could do. And he responds to their cries in unexpected and incredible ways. Salvation, a new identity, resurrected life. As confounding as it felt, Jesus refused to be deterred from his mission to seek and save his people. Again, his grace rarely operates on our schedule. And what we see here, what... See the most, the beautiful inclusivity of this story. Listen to the comparisons. We have Jairus, the man, and a woman. Jairus, who's wealthy, the woman who's poor. Jairus, who's respected, the woman who's rejected. Jairus, who's the synagogue ruler, the woman who's an anonymous nobody. Jairus, who lived a life of honor, the woman who lived a life of shame. Jairus, who came to Jesus submissively, the woman who came to Jesus secretly. Jairus, who had, one, had a 12-year-old child, the woman who was suffering from a disease for 12 years. Jairus experienced 12 years of delight with his little girl. And this woman experienced 12 years of despair. But one important thing in common, they all, all of their needs were met at the feet of Jesus. There is nothing that can separate us from the love we have in Christ Jesus. Jesus will love and save his people completely and to the end. 
Jairus, the woman, and the little girl, they shine as mirrors and examples for us sitting in this room today. They mirror our desperation and need for Jesus to save. We are afraid, and we need Jesus to come with us. We're sick. We're shackled by shame and need to be set free. We're all dead, and we all need Jesus to breathe life into us. But they also serve as examples for us to follow. Jairus, he lays down his pride, and the woman, she perseveres through despair to go to Jesus. They model faith for us, where you humbly submit yourself to Jesus, to his tender love, his patience, his power. Faith takes the courage to admit and acknowledge that I don't know all the twisting turns of this story, but Jesus does, and he is in control of it. You trust that Jesus sees you, that he's with you, and he wants to know the whole story. He wants to know your whole story. This doesn't mean that every prayer that we pray is going to be answered in the exact way we expect or at the time that we expect, but it means, and what this story is teaching us, that Jesus is God and that Jesus is, a, Jesus is someone we can trust. And he proves himself trustworthy on the cross. He puts it all on the line for us on the cross. And he shows himself trustworthy. Everything Jesus was doing with Jairus, with the woman, and the little girl was foreshadowing to the cross where he would wage war against sin and death once and for all. On the cross, he would become weak. He would be drained of his power so that we can become strong. Our uncleanness would be exchanged for his righteousness. On the cross, he was denied the Father's hand so that you and I can know that the Father's hand will never be denied from us. He died and resurrected so that one day you and I will fully and finally wake up to everlasting life. As we continue our journey through Mark, I want you to notice the people who come running to Jesus. It's not the strong and proud. It's always the broken who have no other options but to find the healer. It's those whose lives are filled with shame and guilt, but when they meet Jesus, they find grace and freedom and power and love and mercy. The pattern's the same. They fall before his his feet. And he passionately, yet tenderly, comes to the rescue. He breaks the chains, he calms their fears, and he gives them new life. Where are you in this story? If you're here today, you're trusting in your own strength and self-sufficiency, lay it down and run to him. If you're hiding under the burden of shame, afraid that your sin is too much, it isn't. Run to him, rest in him, let let him clothe you in his righteousness by his grace. He doesn't ask anything from you. Are you suffering and don't know if you can keep going? Run to him. Rely on him and his people. Rely on these people here in hope in the promise of resurrection life.
if you have placed your faith in Jesus and if you're here today and, and you feel okay, keep trusting in him. Trust him with whatever it is in your life and allow him to do what only he can do. Amen? All of this leads to this table. I love how the story ends. The little girl gets up and she's dancing around, but Jesus, he looks at her parents and he says, hey, don't forget to to feed her. Jesus is acting like a good parent. And he's saying, I know that you're amazed of what we've just done, but she's weak. She's going to need food to strengthen her back to health. This is likely an eyewitness touch, but it also shows us Jesus's kindness and his care for his people. He knows that food will help this little girl regain her strength. And at the very least, he knows what this girl needs in that moment. And Jesus, out of that same kindness and care, has given us a meal. He knew what we needed. He knew that our faith would grow weak, that our faith needed, uh, needed strength. And so he gives us this simple meal where he promises to meet with us, to strengthen our faith and to keep going. This meal is not for the strong, but the weak. It's for those who have nowhere else to go, but trust and believe that all of their needs are met in Jesus. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the same way, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The apostle Paul would later say that as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And friends, he will come again.